And thanks for joining us. I'm Frank Sesno, Director of the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University, sitting in for Diane Rehm today. Donald Trump meets with Mexico's president amid sharp criticism from the Mexican people. The Brazilian Senate votes to impeach the country's embattled president. And the FBI accuses Russian hackers of targeting U.S. election systems. A panel of journalists joins me now for an analysis of the top international stories. So here to discuss it, Tom Bowman of NPR, Courtney Cuby of NBC News, and Paul Danahar of the BBC. Welcome to you all. Good to be here. Thank you. Let's start in Mexico, which seems a reasonable place to start. Um... Paul, why don't you take us there? Uh, Big roll of the dice, it seemed, for the Mexican president, and it hasn't been playing very well before or since. It was catastrophic for the American president. I mean, he's had a pretty bad... Mexican president. Mexican president. Maybe the American president in due course, but... Well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, let's see. Um, Yeah, um, he was elected in 2012. Uh, He was a new face of the old party. He was going to change things. He had all these ideas of reforms. He was going to change the energy sector, open it up to the world, and then the oil price collapsed, and it's been downhill ever since. So this was a way of him to try, I don't know, I don't know who was trying to be more presidential in this particular visit, but they both probably failed. Um, but now he's being completely uh, trashed by everyone in the country. There's a comedian that's created a superhero called Super Slap, uh, reflecting what they say is a slap in the face of the Mexican people, having Donald Trump down, who's spent most of the year insulting them. So not a good day for him. Courtney Cuby, the Mexican president sort of blew things up, though, after Trump left with a tweet. Uh, right. So during the, the press conference, the question that everyone wanted to know, they held a, a joint press conference afterwards after their meeting and everyone wanted to know, did they discuss the wall and who's going to pay for it? And Donald Trump was uncharacteristically solemn and subdued and frankly looked very presidential. It, it reminded me when I first saw the shot, I thought it looked like the U.N. You know, it was that green marble up at the U.N. It reminded me exactly of that. So so that that was a win, an optics win for him. Um, but then, after, and he said, when asked about the the wall, he said, "We discussed the wall. We did not discuss who was going to pay for it." Well, then, the Mexican president said, tweeted that we are not going to pay for the wall. And then, of course, Donald Trump went to Arizona and said they will pay for the wall, and they don't know it. If you look at the language, they both are probably telling the truth because neither of them actually said it sounds like they didn't really discuss it is what it came up to. It just it, it was sort of touched on but not discussed, which makes sense. I mean, Donald Trump is not president. He's not going to build the wall. He's at, at any point unless he becomes president and maybe not even then. So it, it, it's a moot point at this point still. Tom Bowman, the Mexican president, invited both candidates there. Donald Trump seized on it. One of the names that's been kicking around since this visit is Neville Chamberlain. In Mexico, yeah, I don't. I wouldn't go that far. Well, no, that's what the critics have said. Oh, the they, critics have accused, said, yeah, they've accused the Mexican president of essentially being the you know accommodating wow. this incredible thing. But, so, the the the, uh, the the interesting thing is what impact this is having on political discourse and the equation in Mexico. Oh, well, right. I mean, clearly he had a 23 percent approval rating. I think he can only go down from here. This has to be one of the strangest invitations in international politics. Why you would invite the only person who's less popular than you to stand there after, you know, a a meeting makes absolutely no sense. There are pinatas of uh, Donald Trump down there. People are beating. There are protests. A lot of former officials in Mexico are trashing their own president for inviting Donald Trump. This would only have made sense if the Mexican president turned to Trump when he mentioned the wall and said, sir, let me just tell you right now. 
I am not paying for that wall. He may have gone up in the polls maybe five points or ten points, but for him to stand there lamely and listen to Donald Trump and say absolutely nothing, I think everyone on you know, both sides of the Rio Grande are just scratching their heads saying this made absolutely no sense. It's, it's insane. To use the event to dress the American candidate down. I think there were some Mexicans who hoped that he would stand there and demand an apology, and instead he almost, uh, he almost made... Donald Trump made excuses for Donald Trump by saying, well, he seems like he wants to build a relationship and he didn't necessarily mean to, to insult people and whatnot. This this could have actually been a PR win. So so the Mexican president said that he understood there needs to be a, there's a need for an open dialogue. I, I actually think this was a potential for him to look very leader like he could have said, I understand this is the a major party party candidate for president in the United States. There needs to be an open dialogue. We need good relations between our countries. So I'm going to reach out to both of the both of them, and I'm going to stand here, and I'm going to, to make a good faith effort to get to know them both and to have a relationship with both of them. Unfortunately, with someone like Donald Trump, where he's built this campaign on this vitriolic language, much of it really directed at Mexicans and, and Mexican immigrants, he, uh, President Peña Nieto, if he had just looked a little stronger and, and said to Donald Trump, you have really hurt the Mexican people, and, and I'm calling you here and asking you why you've done this, I, I think it actually could have been a PR win instead of the disaster that and it the turned curious into. thing, Donald Trump is the one that came off looking presidential. He called him, he's a friend. I look for good things for both the American people yeah, and the Mexican people. Maybe we'll deal with NAFTA a little bit. Everyone's watching this saying, man, this guy actually I mean, I looks if, like he has stature. If Hillary had actually agreed, then he could have used Hillary to do the beating up on Trump and then just stood back and looked. But when only Trump said yes, he boxed himself into a corner. He had to stand there and defend Mexico. Hillary may have done the job for him if she turned up. But once he boxed himself in, it was catastrophic not to react. We will be taking your comments, your calls, your questions throughout the hour here. Here to talk about uh, international developments over this past week. So please give us a call at 1-800-433-8850, 800-433-8850. Send us your email at drshow at wamu.org. Join us on Facebook or Twitter. So you mentioned Hillary Clinton uh, just now. Let's, let's play with that for a minute because she weighed in with a very harsh speech, foreign policy speech, where she attacked uh, Donald Trump repeatedly. She uh, cited the Mexico trip and said that he just, these are her words, failed his first foreign test. Yeah, and I think, you know, it was uh, an open goal for him in many ways because um, he's completely dug himself deeper and deeper and deeper in terms of dealing with the outside world. I mean, when American diplomats go around the world, when they come to Europe, when they go anywhere, they just get asked, is he really going to become president? Because the outside world is petrified of the idea of Donald Trump becoming president of the United States. And they really don't understand how America can go from Obama to Trump in the space of eight years. So there is a, a great deal of concern, and she's playing to that. She knows that pretty much the international community is lined up behind her. And she was, you know, it was easy for her to make herself more and more statesman-like and to make him look less and less statesman-like. How then does this visit, uh, the Trump visit and the speech on immigration, play internationally, uh, play around the world? Uh, well, I mean, you know, as Tom said, I, it, Donald Trump, from an optics perspective, he looked more presidential. This was his first international trip. It was it was an unusual choice because it's the one country that he is, uh, you know, I think Tom said this earlier, is the even more unpopular than the sitting president, who's very unpopular. Um, but Hillary Clinton, you know, she she used his visit 
she was speaking before a military audience, largely veterans, and I, and I think she used the visit as another attempt to kind of drive a wedge between the Donald Trump and any military voters. I don't know if it was successful or not, but she, she accused him of things like throwing temper tantrums and, and, uh, and you know, his acting like a loose cannon and how dangerous that is on the international scale and the potential for destruction of, of longstanding U.S. allies. And, and that's actually a very powerful and logical argument that she should be making. Paul Danaher. And the thing is that most of the rest of the world doesn't want to be standing next to Donald Trump. So we often get sort of candidates going around the world. They go to the Middle East, they go to the UK. Um, sometimes they make a bit of a mistake about when they're actually there, but they go and they, get, and they meet people. But no one in the rest of the world particularly wants to stand next to Trump because he doesn't do them any good whatsoever. They genuinely don't think and they really don't hope that he's going to become the president. So when he went to, to the UK, he went to Scotland, he flew in, he went to his golf course and he left. There was no visit to, to, to number 10 down in And in this case also, he sounded reasonable when he was sitting next to the Mexican president. You know, called him a friend again. You know, I wish best things for the, both the American people and the Mexican people. And then three hours later, he goes over and gives his full-throated cry about 11 million people have to go. We're going to build that wall. He did a complete 180. So I'm sure a lot of international leaders look at this and say, boy, this guy's going to be standing next to me. And then he goes back home and does the opposite. Courtney Kuby, you talked about an unpopular sitting president. Um, so there's another unpopular sitting president who isn't sitting anymore. <laughs> and that is the president of Brazil, Dilma Rousseff. She was removed from office this week. Bring us up to speed. So she was actually impeached uh, back in, or suspended back in May, and then the trial was this week. She was impeached officially by the Senate. She's accused of of, um, of banking, breaking banking laws. She she's accused of of using government banks to temporarily fund some popular uh, social programs. And while it, she didn't necessarily break any laws, it's actually this process. This this. Um, it's called peddling, and it's actually relatively common. She just did it on a larger scale than some of her predecessors had. One of the concerns, or one of her, the critics say, is that she did this in an election year because she knew she was she was close. She may not win. She did it to maintain these very popular social programs. After she was elected by a very narrow margin, then she came out and said, well, the economy is actually in trouble and, and billions of dollars. Banks have been funding billions of dollars for these social programs. So her vice president turned political opponent was sworn in this week, and he's already off to the G20 to begin hopefully rebuilding and, and the economy. And analysts basically say this is a minor charge. It's, she was concealing a budget deficit by borrowing from a state-owned bank. They see it's illegal but not a criminal offense, which leads her supporters to say this is really a coup going on here. This is, you know, you're going against a sitting president. You're going against the Workers' Party. This is sort of a right-wing coup going on. That, that was what her opponents are saying, and it's, it's caused more political unrest. And what is her successor up against? Uh, well, he's up, against, he's up against a country that basically won the Olympics and won the World Cup when everybody thought it was going to be one of the new bright economic uh, giants, not only in the region but in the whole world, and it's been downhill ever since. I was in uh, Rio just a couple of weeks ago for the Olympics, and the general mood of the country is one of gloom and doom. Um, the, the irony is the people that voted her out, a lot of them are corrupt, are much more corrupt than she is, so nothing's really going very well in Rio. They've got a long way to go. Well, coming up more on the uh, Friday News Roundup, your calls, your questions, our conversation about the world with our panel. You're listening to The Diane Reem Show. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. 
It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, D.C., in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. Welcome back to the Diane Reem Show. I'm Frank Sesno of the George Washington University sitting in for Diane today. If you'd like to join uh, our conversation with a question or a comment, please give us a call at 1-800-433-8850 or send us your email at drshow at wamu.org. We are speaking with Tom Bowman of the uh, of NPR, Pentagon correspondent, Courtney Cuby, national security producer at NBC News, and Paul Danahar, Washington bureau chief at the BBC and author of The New Middle East, The World After the Arab Spring. So let us use that, Paul, as a as a segue to to move to that general region of the country and a very significant development this past week, a senior Islamic State strategist, so-called voice of ISIS, being killed. Yeah, I think it's a really, really big deal because al-Adnani in many ways was the charisma of ISIS. You know, he brought the kind of bin Laden factor to ISIS. Um, He was the one that announced the creation of the state. He was the public face. He was the fa- he's the one that said, we are now the Islamic State. We are now a caliphate, and ba- al-Baghdadi is, is our leader. He was the one that was publicly feuding with the al-Qaeda leader, as I were here. He was mocking him as, you know, like you're out of touch. He was the man that led and wooed away a whole generation of young jihadis towards ISIS and away from al-Qaeda because, you know, he was, he was actually in the room saying, we'll use this video this is the gory video we're going to put out now, and this is how we're going to use it. There are claims that he was also involved in um, directing the attacks abroad, and he was the one that came out and said in, 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 in 2014, lone wolf attacks are the way forward. Forget the al-Qaeda spectaculars. If you've got a knife, if you've got a car, run them over. So there were stories last week that said even with his death, that won't be that significant because there are plenty of others or the movement will continue. Do you agree with that, disagree with that? No, I think that that's a good point. That, you know, again, it is a good thing that this guy is gone. He did inspire a whole new generation. He uh, was, I guess, linked to the attacks in Paris and Brussels. But you have to remember, too, that a lot of the people he inspired and trained are probably in Europe right now. There could be uh, more attacks in Europe as a result of his death. The bottom line is Raqqa and Mosul still have not fallen. It's going to take a long time before they get those cities back. And um, there is a huge number of ISIS fighters still out there and inspiring people not only in the Middle East and in Europe, but probably around the world. So, you know, these hits have happened before. Remember Jihadi John, the the British guy that uh, was decapitating Western hostages. And then we have finance ministers killed from Raqqa. And every time it happens, the Pentagon says, well, this is a big win. And it just keeps going on. And yet that this happens as they're losing territory. So is the cumulative effect having a bite, taking a toll? I think that ISIS is in a lot of ways on its heels right now. The the campaign against ISIS in Iraq and Syria has gained a lot of momentum recently. They 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 went right through Mambij without as much pushback as they thought they would get. Up in the north, near Jerobolus, the Turks have been able to take that back, and a bunch of the border towns are sort of sweeping west across the border area. Uh, so ISIS, it's fair to say that, that the campaign against ISIS is going well. I agree with both Paul and with Tom that, that Adnani is was a very important figure. He probably will continue to inspire after his death. But the reality is ISIS, the, the, the coalition has picked off like 120 ISIS fighters. No one is important as him, but but 
it, 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 it doesn't really have a practical daily impact. It has more of a symbolic, maybe a hiccup. But they are ISIS has become such a bureaucratic institution that they always have leaders in place. They have it's it's much like a, an actual bureaucracy, a bureaucratic government. They have people who are ready to step in to take that next spot. So as far as on a day-to-day basis, it's not going to have a real big practical impact. And Paul Dunhart, both the U.S. and Russia are claiming credit in killing this guy. Yeah. Uh, um, and it's interesting, really, because, I mean, I think, I think the, uh, the, the Pentagon response to the Russian claim that they did was, was wonderful bit of diplomacy. It was kind of a nice way of saying that's kind of BS, frankly. Um, but I think what's really interesting about this is if he was genuinely targeted as it being him and they knew where he was at the time, then I think that's quite important. Because if they can find someone like him and target him and kill him, then that suggests that they're actually making some inroads into the organisation. Will it, will it end ISIS? No, it won't end ISIS. But does it show perhaps they're penetrating some of ISIS? Perhaps. Right. There's one thing good the Americans, you know, w- one thing they're good at is basically with the drone warfare with uh, intercepting communications, with uh, targeting someone, uh, staying up in the sky for dozens of hours watching someone. When they got the Taliban leader in Pakistan, after he traveled from Iran, they actually had his SIM card number, so they knew exactly who it was. They could pick up his conversations and then target him once he got to outside an area where there is, you know, no people. There wouldn't be many civilian casualties. So... I'm guessing it was probably an American drone strike. We'll have to get more information. They say they're still looking into it. Meanwhile, the region continues to convulse. The complicated war in Syria got even more complicated with Syrian rebels pushing into Kurdish territory with help from Turkey. And now we see U.S. allies potentially pitted against one another. So, Courtney, can you give us a little bit of a primer here? so that people can follow this, okay. explain this. Sure. So it's, it is very complicated, but it's broken down into this. The Turks have allied with this group of Free Syrian Army. They are Syrian um, Arabs that the U.S. actually trained some of them years ago in, or months ago in the very first train and equip program that was largely failed. They were across the border in Turkey. They were building up to 1,500 to 2,000 or so fighters. This week, they started lobbing artillery across the border and eventually sent tanks across the border. They said to go after ISIS, but in reality... The Turks. The Turks, that is. The Turks and this free Syrian army contingent of of, uh, Syrian Arabs. In reality, they did go after some ISIS, but they were also going after some Syrian Kurds called the YPG. So... How, why are the Syrian Kurds up there? This this operation in Mambidge that we've mentioned, this was actually an operation by the Syrian Democratic Forces, where there were a group of Syrian Kurds, the YPG, and some Syrian Arabs. They fought in Manbij together. To, they fought together. They pushed ISIS out north, out of the city. The agreement, because Turkey was never wanted any kind of Kurdish help there, frankly. They, they see all Kurds, no matter what, as terrorists. The agreement was after Manbij was cleared, the YPG, the Syrian Kurds, would move back east across the Euphrates and never go towards Turkey. In fact, when the ISIS fighters started moving north out of Manbij, the YPG followed them. The Turks saw that as a threat, and they started firing on them and attacking them with, with artillery and tanks. So why is this so complicated? Because the YPG are probably the strongest fighting force on the ground in Syria right now, and they're U.S.-backed. The U.S. has special operations forces with them exactly. right now. That's right. And then there's the Free Syrian Army. So they're both U.S.-trained and backed groups, and they're literally fighting against so, each other right now. So just to be really clear about this, Tom, the, the U.S. is working with some of these Kurds. Oh, absolutely. Correct. The Turks view Kurds, as Courtney just said, 
as terrorists. Exactly. Turkey is a NATO American ally. And the Kurds are the best fighters the U.S. has. So, bottom line? It's going to be a huge problem. This is the most interesting thing to watch over the coming weeks. Do the Turks keep hitting the YPG, the Kurdish fighters? And do the Kurds actually move back across Euphrates heading, heading east? Because the U.S. wants them to start pressing Raqqa, the, the ISIS capital. And there are t- here, here's the other thing that complicates matters even further. There are two Kurdish enclaves in northern Syria. What the Turks want to prevent is those joining and having a huge enclave all along the southern part of the Turkish-Syrian uh, border. So look for the Turks to, to block that move for the Kurds to connect those two enclaves and have a, a nice strip along the border. That's what's coming up next. And I think we're going to see, because the, the, the attempted coup in Turkey, I think, has changed the game. It's given um, Erdogan a lot more capacity to tell the army what to do. The, there was a kind of a bit of an argument going on in the army. How much do you want to get involved in this? What do we want to do? What are our, ta- what are our tactics? And now it's like, you'll do as I want. And there's no more argument in the army. They're doing as he wants, because anyone who was arguing is now locked up. So I think we're going to see a much more aggressive role from and Turkey. And that's one of the future. concerns of the Americans, that a lot of these generals and admirals have been removed by Erdogan. And they're wondering if these people, first of all, are competent enough to take on the ISIS fight, and if they'll actually know what they're doing, and, or will they just be sort of lackeys for Erdogan? Uh, Courtney, many Kurds have been suspicious and wary of Western powers for 100 years because they feel they've been betrayed. Mm -hmm. Some of them are worrying, based on what's playing out now, that that's about to happen again. And the United States will betray them. Yeah, it's, it, there are already some Kurdish fighters who are saying this is just another case of the West making promises that they're going to back us and then abandoning us. What is America's response to that? So uh, America's an impossible position right now because who are they going to choose? Are they going? They are they going to stop backing Turkey, a NATO ally? Stop? No, they aren't going to. Are they going to stop siding with these YPG fighters, these, the strongest fighting force there? No. So all they're doing is standing in the middle and telling everyone, "Hey, wait, wait, stop fighting amongst yourselves. Let's all focus on ISIS." But but no one's listening. It's it's actually a very interesting picture into how the U.S. has very little influence in the region right now. And the Kurds should be worried because they're going to be knifed in the back, as they have been several times over the past century. And uh, But the problem is the U.S. needs them, to, again, to press Raqqa. So the Kurds, they have nothing left to do but work with the United States, get supplied by them. Their best hope is when the smoke clears, when the Civil War ends, when ISIS is defeated, maybe get some sort of an enclave in northern Syria. Maybe it's a loose confederation of some sort. That's the best they can hope for out of this whole Tom, thing. Tom, what, what are your sources at the Pentagon telling you is going to be their response to this? The Kurds? No, to the, well, to the overall situation on the ground. How are they dealing with this? Uh, how's the Pentagon dealing with yes. this? Yes. Well, again, they're hoping they're... they're one of the things they want to do is have the – they're acting as a referee. They want the Turks and the Kurds to stop hitting each other, and they want them to focus on ISIS. But the, the concern is that the Kurds may say, well, hang on a second. You know, if, if I'm going to die for nothing, what, what do I get from this in the end? What they want them to do is continue the, the push south to take the uh, ISIS capital of Raqqa. That's and, what they're And hoping. post-coup, how much influence does the United States of America and the military have with the Turks? Not too much. No, there was uh, after the coup. The, the Turks were really angry that, in the immediate aftermath of the coup, the um, high, senior American leaders didn't go there and express their support. The first person who went there was General Dunford a week or two afterwards, and and he got an earful from them saying, "Why isn't the U.S. coming out and supporting us? Why are they 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 see they saw it as a tepid response?" Paul Dunahar, another subject. We learned this week about potential Russian hacking into U.S. election systems. 
Yeah, the Russia. <laughs> I think, and this this kind of plays off what we've just been talking about because the level of of, of good faith. Um, around the world between America and Russia is so bad now that they, the Russians are being accused of hacking into the registration systems in Illinois and Arizona, um, attempting to basically influence an American election. And this is symptomatic of just how bad relations have got between America and Russia. The whole, we really do have a very quietly undeclared Cold War in all of this. What do we know about how good the proof is about this. I mean, well, is this just an allegation or is there something to back this up? Uh, the FBI says it's credible. Uh, on a scale of one to ten, it's about an eight. So, I mean, they're taking it quite seriously. That's right. And uh, I was talking to people yesterday about this. They're very concerned about it. They're spending a lot of money, a lot of uh, time trying to look into this further. But there's a real concern now about undermining the election. Um, you know, uh, if, if more states are hacked into, you know, What's the faith in the whole system? Would you have to go back to paper ballots, let's say, in some states? Oh, my gosh. Uh, hanging chads? Yeah. Hanging so. chads. That's right. <laughs> but there's a huge concern about this. Um, and where does this go from here? At the same time, you have, you know, a Donald Trump saying, you know, the election's going to be rigged and stolen. This is, this is not a good thing to have. Yeah, the reality is the Russians probably can't really manipulate the votes. They probably can't do much. But what they can do is so concern and doubt. And when you have Donald Trump out there saying their elections are going, could be rigged and the only way that I'll lose is if people are cheating, then that already sows concern. And especially so, – so one thing the Russians could do, if they can hack into databases, they could arguably delete names. So then when people would show up to vote, their names wouldn't be there. They wouldn't be able to vote. If that's widespread, and especially if it's an area that might be tight or might be close or ends up swinging for one candidate versus the other, then that in and of itself will sow discontent in voters and people will be will start screaming that the election was rigged. I'm Frank Sesno, and you are listening to The Diane Reem Show. If you'd like to call us, please do at 1-800-433-8850. Send us an email at drshow at wamu.org. Find us on Facebook or send us a tweet. The hacking incident follows a similar or somewhat similar DNC, Democratic National Committee, computer hack. Tell us about that. And is that related, do we think, to what we're hearing about the Russians potentially hacking into Arizona and Illinois? So the, the DNC hack seems to be have tighter, closer ties to the actual the Kremlin, to the Russian government, as opposed to what we're seeing in the voters, which the, uh, the voter databases, which seem to be potentially Russian and backed, but maybe aren't necessarily tied to the government. Um, Vladimir Putin actually gave an interview to Bloomberg overnight that came that came out several hours ago in which he said, well, why is everyone paying so much attention to who actually did this? What matters is the information got out there, specifically about the DNC hack, which we all saw in July that led to the, the chair, the party chair stepping down. Uh, so they, they are they could be similar. I think the larger concern here is, you know, for a long time we saw Russian hacking as more of having more of like an economic bent, looking more towards economic espionage. If, in fact, they're focusing more on politics and, and like, fomenting chaos and sowing doubt in politics, that's, that's a change. That's a difference. Let us bring the audience into this. We have a tweet from Alex. What is the U.S. exit strategy after ISIS regarding Turkish policy versus Kurdish interests in the Middle East? Uh, there is no exit strategy. <laughs> I think that's been a problem for, you know, many years now. There was no um, entry strategy either. <laughs> that's that's a, even more of a problem. So, um, you know, I think one of the interesting stories when the smoke clears on this is 
what happens with Iraq and Syria? Are those countries just gone? Do they not exist anymore? And if that's the case, who draws the lines? Churchill and Gertrude Bell are dead. They're not around to draw these lines again. So what happens? I think that's the most fascinating story of all. Tom, it's going to be so interesting when we have the foreign policy presidential debate, because presumably, and maybe for the first time in a sustained way, the candidates are going to be asked questions like that, specific questions where they're going to have to respond. We haven't heard much of that in that level of detail from the campaign trail, certainly. No, we have not at all. Um, it, one of the problems, let's face it, Donald Trump really has no experience in foreign affairs. I was talking to a retired general that said his lack of knowledge on national security uh, issues is just unfathomable. But Let us go to the calls. Uh, Richard from uh, Massachusetts joins us. Hi, Richard. Hi, hi, Frank. Thank you. You kind of stole my thunder a little bit. Oh, I don't ever want to do that. (laughs) Well, I'm old enough to remember, you know, the Vietnam War, and it was for 10 years that we were there and all that. Uh, And, you know, back then, we had a Senate Foreign Relations Committee that would have hearings on on the war and and different aspects of the war. Um, We had some great senators uh, during that period. Today, uh, we've been in uh, the Middle East for over 15 years. And I don't hear anything uh, from the Foreign Relations Committee having hearings on any of this. Right now, Yemen, we're, we're, we're supplying Saudi Arabia with all kinds of weapons and intelligence, and the war in Yemen has been going on for a year and a half. And nobody's saying the darn thing about it. All right. Well, let, me, let me ask Paul to jump in here. Yeah, look, I think, I think that's, there's a lot of discussions going on. Just nobody seems to know what to do. I think, I think one of the interesting things, Hillary Clinton's response to Donald Trump's talking about his foreign policy was, you know, she said, you know, he, we've got to contain ISIS. We've got, we've got to def- we can't contain ISIS, so we've got to defeat them, which was a dig at Donald Trump, but it was also a dig at the policy of, of Barack Obama because he sat back far too long um, to, to decide what he was going to do. So I think the, the, the listener's got a good point. Well, first of all, it's great to hear such a Boston accent. I've <laughs> lost a bit of mine over the years, but it's great. With a little prodding, you could probably get back to it. I think I could. <laughs> It's not that hot. <laughs> so um, what Richard raises a good point that basically, you know, Congress is not doing much in this. You know why? Because they don't want to own it. They don't want to own it because if you own it and you break it, then you still own it. That's right. You're listening to The Diane Reem Show. We are talking the International News Roundup. And we'll be back with our guests and more of your questions and calls after a brief break. We're talking with Tom Bowman, Courtney Kuby, and Paul Danahar. We'll be back. Welcome back to the Diane Reem Show. I'm Frank Sesno, sitting in for Diane today. We're talking with Tom Bowman, Pentagon correspondent for NPR, Courtney Cuby, national security producer at NBC News, Paul Danahar. He's the Washington bureau chief at the BBC, author of The New Middle East, The World After the Arab Spring. Um, so here's an email from Eric. Eric asks you all, uh, so if the Russians are trying to influence our elections, which way are they leaning? Courtney? Well, I, I think the assumption is that they would be leaning towards um, Donald Trump being the next president because of the uh, positive things that Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump have said about one another. There's also some allegations that some of Trump's top campaign people have ties to Russia and whatnot. Um, so that's the assumption. Um, I think that anyone who tries to know what Russia or Vladimir Putin are trying to do or tries to assess it is probably 
opening themselves up for criticism because he is always doing the unexpected. So. Paul, what's the view from the BBC? <laughs> I don't think we have a view officially. Um, but uh, no, look, I mean, if you look at the kind of leaks that are coming out that the Russians are being blamed for, uh, particularly the, the leaks over the DNC, I mean, the, it's clearly seen as they're trying to put their kind of finger on the skate a little bit towards, towards Trump. I mean, you know, every single government that has to do tough negotiations with America would like to be dealing with someone that the establishment is not convinced by. Um, and that is untested in terms of, you know, being presidential. So uh, it, it would make sense. Uh, maybe there's something even deeper that we can't work out, and he, and he really wants Clinton to get it, but I doubt it. To the phones now, and James calls us from Miami, Florida. James, thanks for your patience and standing by. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, thank you for taking my call, first of all. I just want to start by saying that I'm an avid NPR listener. I'm also an LGBTQ American, and um, I was listening to your panel's discussion of Donald Trump's uh, visit to Mexico. And they all seem to be very uh, anti-Trump and biased against Trump. And as an NPR listener, I, I expect the, you know, the program to be impartial. So, you know, it's fine if you want to have anti-Trump people on your panel, but I think you should have had at least one or two uh, people that are, you know, support Trump or are not necessarily biased against him. I thought somebody said, I don't remember who it was, that uh, Trump looked presidential. I watched the whole uh, meeting there with uh, um Presidente uh, Enrique um, Peña Nieto, uh -huh. and I thought he, w I thought uh, Trump was very presidential. All right, uh, let me let me bounce that off uh, the panel, um, and perhaps you want to explain where you're coming from as journalists and how you handle what do in fact seem to sound like a number of. Uh, comments raising questions and criticisms about Donald Trump. I Paul think Dunham. journalists are probably the only people that are enjoying this election. I mean, it's it's remarkable for us. I mean, I think you know we are seeing such an amazing campaign. The man himself is generating so much news. I mean, you look at the newspapers. We were just browsing through them. He's on the front pages, or his issues are on the front pages every time. I don't think it's a matter that we, we're for or against any candidate. What we're doing is it being confronted with an amazing campaign, and we're trying to dig into it and work out what's going on. Tom Bowman, what's your... And I don't think we're biased against Trump. I think anybody looking at this, seeing him in Mexico, everyone would say he looked presidential. Again, he called... A Mexican president, a friend, he said, I want the best for both the Mexicans and the Americans. We can work out NAFTA and so forth and so on. But clearly, he came back to the United States and did a 180. There's no question. Objectively, that's what everybody would say. Trump supporters are people who don't like him. Uh, yeah, I, it's not our job to be in favor of either of the candidates, but I, I think it is absolutely fair to say that he looked presidential. I think I also said that he looked solemn, maybe, or, um, and I it is absolutely fair to that, say that is uncharacteristic because you can turn directly to the speech he gave several hours later, which was very bombastic and, and, and playing to the crowd, which is, of course was, you know, animated and, and even cheering for things that I, you would think they may not have even been in favor of. So um, I don't think that any of us meant, any, meant it as a, a, a negative aspect that he looked president. And one other thing, it's true that his campaign has been all over the map on this issue just in the last two weeks. He talked about softening. He talked about maybe we can some other people, you know, who are here illegally don't have to leave right away. And then he gave this full-throated defense but, of his position. But, then, but, I mean, the whole point of his campaign is I'm not like the rest of them. 
So what was interesting this week was that he acted like the rest of them just for about an hour when he was with the Mexican president. That's so right. there was a distinction. He's been running on, I'm not business as usual. Uh, I have an email from Deepak here um, who says the following. Trump wants to build a wall on the southern border to stop Mexicans coming into the United States, yet the northern border with Canada is wide open for criminal Russians, Eastern Europeans, and others. Uh, certainly, as you were just saying, Donald Trump is driving the agenda here. If we're going to talk about walls and border security, why not the northern border? That, that, I mean, Deepak makes an, an excellent point. It's probably something that should be part of the conversation. If you go on Donald Trump's website, I was on it this week looking to see what some of his national pol- national um, security policies are, and he doesn't discuss any of them other than building a wall on his website. Back that the, being said, that, you know, if you've been across the border in Canada, I have in Montana and also northern Vermont, you don't get the population flow across those borders that you do in Mexico. That's just a different thing. It's exactly. different, different yeah. groups. Okay, back to the phones. Lydia joins us from the other Woodstock, Woodstock, Illinois. Hi, Lydia. Hi, thank you. Uh, We had the president of Mexico doing a portraiture of Donald Trump in formal tennis whites, just like the portrait he has in his mansion in Florida. This doesn't mean that Donald is ready to go to Wimbledon. And to tell you the truth, Donald knows that. He is a lobber. He, like Sarah Palin and Ann Coulter, relies 100% on what tennis players know when they first start the game of tennis, which is an underhanded, inartful, unskilled strategy. And he doesn't want to give it up because it's gotten them so far, and it got him on the playing field. Sarah Palin spent a great deal of time in Arizona cultivating that crowd. She had a house there. She lived there. She is a lover par excellent, and the Republican Party owes us an apology for building strategies around people who are like Sarah Palin, Donald Trump, and Ann Coulter, prime lobbers. Okay, Lydia, thank you very much. Well, this is what's great about the the, the audience for the Diane Ream show, okay? We are literate, and, and we have an analogy here. It's a tennis analogy. And you're the closest to Wimbledon with your accent, so have at it. <laughs> uh, look, I mean, I think there's nothing... No one can argue that the uh, there's been some uncharacteristically uh, interesting characters that have been thrown up recently on the Republican side of uh, American politics. Uh, and you can see a lot of the establishment wondering how they got where they are. I mean, this is a man that has managed to wipe the floor with everyone that everybody else thought was obviously going to be the candidate. So, I mean, you know, the tactics, I guess, you argue about depending on your uh, political point of view. But you have to say that uh, so far the people that have been carrying out those tactics have been quite successful. And the other thing, too, we have to remember that both uh, Sarah Palin and Donald Trump, they're sort of appealing to a narrow section of the electorate. And I think some of campaign uh, advisors for Trump had hoped he would broaden his appeal to suburban uh, voters and not just those, um, let's say, uh, less educated uh, folks who, you know, have lost their jobs. But I think that what's interesting with the ca- with campaigns all around the world as they've moved on is in the old days, to find out what was going on, you had to come through us a lot, the establishment. Through the media, yeah, through the press. And, and nowadays, you can only get what you want and only that point of view from social media. You don't need to go onto television to get... So I think people are getting their own ideas reflected back at them and amplified. And that's taking the, the middle ground debate as being lost because everyone knows exactly what they think and they're not prepared well, to Well, the other thing that Donald Trump has shown challenged. is how you set the agenda with social media as a candidate. And that Absolutely. is something that is going to resonate around the world as well because there will not be a candidate in any country who is not going to be able to see how this candidate has driven his 
political allies and opponents, the media and others, by virtue of his tweets and, and, and his statements at all times of the days, day and night. It also David, calling David in. joins us from Grand Rapids, Michigan. David, go ahead. Uh, yes, um, uh, my name is David Insiko, Grand Rapids, Michigan, originally from Africa. Well, I was for Bernie 100%, but then, uh, you know, what happened with Bernie, cheated out, blown out of the waters. And because of that, I crossed straight to Trump. You went from Bernie to Trump. I'm now on for Trump. Okay. Now, now it's happening again. Everybody is so, whoever speaks, this is our radio. Everybody, believe me, 100%, almost 100% of the foreigners listen to NPR. This is a radio for all foreigners. But the more negative you put on Trump, the more people are running away from Hillary. The more negative stuff you put on Trump. And some of, people, some of them are so much transparent, but people see through. They just cross over to Trump. So you're, what you're saying is you think the coverage is too negative toward Trump? Too negative. Too, too, too negative mean, toward Trump. But what do you think the media should do and what do you think a journalist should do if he or she hears Donald Trump contradict something that he has said shortly before that or make a statement that is factually incorrect? For example, we have Hillary with uh, emails and everything. Now, okay, they talk about negatively but not so deeply negatively and hatred and all stuff. But if somebody digs up like Hillary's uh, emails so negatively and with hatred and all that, everybody's going to run away. Tom Bowman, that's, that, um, David raises a re- very interesting point about the overall just pervasive negativity of this campaign, whether it's coming from Trump or from Hillary or from the media or anywhere else. You know, uh, if 1984 was, you know, morning in America, as others have said, this is midnight in America, at least if you listen to the political discourse. Is that part of this problem that he's picking up on? Uh, Yeah, I think so. And first of all, both candidates are incredibly um, unpopular. That's one of the problems here. So both are hammering at each other. And Donald Trump is, let's face it, he's a bulldog when it comes to these tactics. We've never seen anybody quite like him. You know, uh, Lion Ted and Crooked Hillary. I mean, you would never in the past see anybody say things like that. So um, I think that's part of the problem here is, you you know, you have uh, both candidates hitting each other pretty hard and not really talking about the issues enough. And that's another point with Trump that you try to press him on certain issues. He said the military is going to be fantastic, it's going to be huge, without any specifics. But this is also just a criticism of the of the media in general. Like, Tom and I, we cover the military. I can't tell you how many times I go to a military panel and the argument is you got, all you do is negative news, you do, you do bad news, you don't do good news. Our job is not to do news that's good or bad. Our job is to cover the news, to report it accurately, to report it factually. That does include what we see. So that does include, at times, some more subjective things. But our job is to cover the news, and good that- or bad. And let's be honest, this is a lesser of two evils campaign. You know, there's so much dislike of both candidates that inevitably the coverage is going to be much more negative. No one's offering a, you know, a shining anything. They're just basically saying, this guy's terrible, or this woman, she's a liar, he's an idiot. So the whole tone of the campaign is incredibly negative, which means the coverage of the campaign is inevitably negative. And I don't think we can get away from that cycle because both sides are driving it. I'm Frank Sesno, and you're listening to The Diane Reem Show. And if you'd like to join our conversation in the remaining minutes, please do so at uh, 1-800-433-8850, 1-800-433-8850, or send us an email at drshow at wamu.org. Very interesting question, uh, email from Earl, coming back to the conversation of Russian um, hacking into computer systems and everything else going on. At what point, Earl asks, does Russian interference in American elections become an act of war? 
I don't think we're there yet. Um, Let's hope not. And I suspect but, but, that there's but the an point awful is, even if it's not an act of war, at what point is it more than a mere nuisance? And what does the United States of America do about that? You, I guess you have to wonder what, Amer- what the United States of America is doing already. I mean, I imagine from the from the Soviet oh, Soviet point, that's a slip of the tongue, from there the Russian right. point of view, um, they probably think that an awful lot that's going on at the moment is against them anyway. So. I, I don't think we're going to get to the point where the American government's going to stand up and say, you know, you're verging on uh, on a kind of a, an act of aggression. Um, and there's always this deniability about Internet hacks because you can't really prove them. The Chinese have been accused of doing all sorts of hacking stuff. Um, I don't think we'll get to the point where someone will be able to stand up and actually point a finger because these guys are clever. Yeah, uh, Harry Reid this week sent a letter to uh, the FBI director asking him to investigate and saying that this has a potential for large-scale election tampering and vote-counting issues and all these sorts of things. But at this point, it's... It's not an attack. It's not what you would consider a cyber attack, which could – this is something that Cyber Command has been, been really fighting with, is what, at what point does it actually constitute an act of war? Um, at this point, we aren't seeing that with this. It seems to be more of a nuisance and a potential larger problem, but not an attack. Courtney, I want to bring you back to something you were talking about so well earlier, the, trying to explain the situation in Syria and, and Turkey with, the, with respect to the Kurds, because there's a very important question here from Michael, who sends us an email and asks a, a very simple question that, that, that is worth a moment. Why is there so much resistance, Michael asks, to the Kurds reestablishing or establishing a country, their own country, Kurdistan? So the Kurds in southern Turkey have been, uh, they have been demanding their own sovereign area in Turkey for some time, for years, and they have carried it out, they've carried out a lot of attacks against the Turkish people, uh, guerrilla attacks, essentially, because they want to have their own their own territory and the Turks won't allow it. So Turkey sees any Kurdish person as a terrorist threat. The Kurds, on the other hand, especially the Syrian Kurds, are saying they just want to establish a safe area where they can live. Uh, you know, Tom mentioned this area with the Afrin Kurds over in the west. There's also the Kobani Kurds. They live almost autonomy, uh, with uh, total autonomy. The same, frankly, in northern Iraq. Iraq, You know, they really live with a lot of autonomy. Uh, The Turks will – I cannot envision a scenario where the Turkish government will allow the Kurds to have any area that is actually their own state. They will always see that as a threat. And the concern is if if the Kurds in Syria are able to have that strip along the border between uh, Turkey and Syria – it, it could serve as a magnet for the Turkish Kurds to say, we want to join that, too. Let's carve out a piece yeah. of Turkey. The Turks will them. never, ever allow that. Back to uh, uh, an email here that we've got. Uh, and this is actually may address some of the earlier questions that we heard about why isn't there more positive and different coverage of Donald Trump. This is, uh, please compare the international experience of Bill Clinton, George Bush, and Barack Obama when they ran for president to Donald Trump, their international experience. In fact, George W. Bush had very little international experience. George H. W. Bush had an enormous amount of, of experience. So we see all ends of the spectrum here. We do, but I think what's interesting in this campaign is if you look back, you know, you've only had to make one mistake, scream at the wrong pitch in a rally or talk about, you know, the 49%, one comment where you seem to be flip-flopping or doing something a bit silly, and you lost. But Donald Trump has been able to change his mind and reinvent himself and say something outrageous and take it back and then say it again and still survive. It's completely overturned everything. We all thought that the, the media image is what drove uh, campaigns these days. You had a nice, shiny image, and everyone loved you, and you could, you could, people would be conned by that. He's just saying, this is me, this is what I think, I'm going to change my mind, 
and he's still been successful. So we're all in uncharted territory here. It's, no, it's, a, it's a PhD waiting to be done, isn't it? <laughs> right, several. No, it is, it is a good point. Uh, George W. Bush, of course, had no foreign policy experience. He was governor of Texas. I think he said the only country he visited was, was Mexico, Mexico. Mm-hmm. at that time. If I had that kind of money, man, I'd be going everywhere in the world. <laughs> um, Clinton, of course, was a governor, had very little uh, foreign policy experience as well. And uh, uh, President Obama, as a senator was served in the Armed Services Committee, made trips abroad, but, you know, didn't have all that much of foreign policy experience. Well, certainly this is one of the things that puzzles especially our European friends so much because of the parliamentary system and their own proximity to all these other countries. They have vast international experience if someone actually becomes prime minister. Our presidential system is entirely different, and it's hard for the world to understand that. Yeah, but what normally happens is you have a group of people that are built around this inexperienced international figure, and then you look at them and go, okay, that's a good, that's a wise decision. That person's clever. They've done this. They've done that. And people have looked at the people that uh, Trump has built around himself and said, I'm not sure these are the right caliber of people to help run America. Finally, last question, Tom, to you. Fallout um, to either candidate from the Mexico visit and continuing to keep this immigration issue front and center in this campaign? I don't think there's much. Well, for for, uh, Trump, he's gone back to his old ways of everyone has to leave, 11 million people. So um, he's going to continue to have that narrow slice of the electorate. So that's all he's going to get. Looked at with a domestic prison, but very much a globalized campaign. Tom Bowman, Courtney Kuby, Paul Danahar, thank you all very much for joining us today. Thanks very much. Thank you. Conversation was terrific. You've been listening to The Diane Rehm Show. I'm Frank Sesno. Have a very safe and a very pleasant weekend. The Diane Rehm Show is produced by Sandra Pinkert, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Botee, Susan Casey, Danielle Knight, and Allison Brody. The engineer is Alex Drewenskis. Danielle Brown answers the phones. Mm-hmm.